So we're in the middle of some house renovations, and um, if you've ever had to do renovations, before things start to look you know, beautiful and exciting, uh, things are destroyed. You know, you're in demolition. And the phase that we're in right now is the house is destroyed. And uh, it's very exciting. It's interesting. It's, a, it's uh, all around you, there's, there's rubble and dust and brokenness, and yet this pervasive sense of excitement through all of it. Susan says to me, this is like a great picture of the gospel. This is a great picture of the eschatological view uh, uh, for the Christian. That's a, that's a big theological word that means, you know, where are we in relation to eternity and living now and the here and now, but yet, you know, the not yet of what Christ has achieved in the, you know, in the end times and this whole picture. And Susan says, you know, it's interesting because um, there's not one part of our home that hasn't been affected by this destruction. Um, you, you put up your, paper, your plastic barriers and you try and tape it off so the dust doesn't get... But your vents blow through the house. So um, you do your best to be as careful and cautious as possible. But the vents are blowing it through. So you can take a shower and clean yourself and come out and say, there, there I'm clean. Um, but you've, you've just immediately received an incredibly thin layer of, of the dust. You're breathing it in. That's just what it's like being in renovations. And living on planet Earth is just like that. There's not one... There's not just not one part of being a human being that hasn't been affected by the fall, the brokenness of man, the sin, the destruction. Life is a paradox. There's, it's not that it's all horrible and horrifying. There's the, for, for those of us who have our faith in Christ, there's a pervasive sense of joy and anticipation uh, and beauty even in the brokenness, even in the destruction. Because in the midst of the most darkest, devastating demolition on earth, like the things that hit our news feeds each week, the things that are constantly going on, whether it's socioeconomic or whether it's racial or something is charged, uh, you know, in one way or the other, there's a pervasive sense of calm in the chaos that's available to us. My kids would make jokes because they'd come downstairs and I'd be standing there with a cup of coffee just staring at this wall for hours because I'm trying to think about once this once we put this wall up we've committed and they'd just come down and I'd be standing there in the middle of this rubble standing with a cup of coffee but you know I was it was very exciting for me now on the outside it looked crazy because there's nothing exciting about it but inwardly I knew something beautiful was coming that is the crux of the Christian hope and Christian faith in the midst of sorrow and devastation we have Christ in the chaos We've been going through uh, the book of John as uh, Jesus makes these seven statements about himself where he reveals himself as the great I am. And he's, with each statement, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the great shepherd, I am the, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. And today we're going to look at this phrase where he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. With each statement he makes draws our attention back to Exodus 3 when God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. And Jesus is very unapologetically saying, I am one and the same. The God that revealed himself as the one who always was, always will be, you know, in the Hebrew it's a series of verbs. Uh, I am that I am, right? The one who always was, the one who is, the one who will always be. Without apology, Jesus says, him and I are one. And as we go through uh, this, we get great hope because um, as Jesus talks about himself, it gives us clarity as to who is this God that we worship? What is he like? Why do we stop every seven days to worship him? And uh, it's like the renovations. We get a hopeful view of life. We get a hopeful view 
of the restoration that has come. We get a hopeful view and a, hope, a hopeful sense of pervasive strength in the midst of the demolition that is being a human on planet Earth, this great God that we worship. John chapter 13 is our text for this morning. I'm going to start reading in verse 31, and I'm going to read through uh, to chapter 14, verse 14. And this takes place right after that famous moment when Judas sticks his hand in the bread uh, bowl with Jesus at the same time, and, uh, and Jesus says, whatever you've got to do quickly, go do it, and Judas leaves. This conversation takes place right after Judas leaves to go and to betray the Christ, and this is what Jesus says. And when he had gone out, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there is many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you will be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word. Now, as we come to this text today where Jesus makes this beautiful statement of being the way, the truth, and life, we're going to take this morning to kind of unpack this text again so that we can see who is this God that we stop dead in our tracks every seven days to worship. Who is he? What is he like? What has he done? How does he give us calm in the chaos? Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus is the way into the grace of God. Jesus is the truth about the nature of God. And Jesus is the life that increasingly reshapes us into the image of God. So as he starts out, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment, and I want you to love one another. This commandment to love, love is to, is to give myself 
at my expense for your benefit. It's to love someone when they're at their worst. It's a pretty tall order. Jesus says, actually, this is how the world is going to know you're my disciples, because you're going to bear the family resemblance. And he says, you know, it's a new commandment. It's not new in the sense that it had never been said before. If you go back to Leviticus 19, right, all throughout the whole scriptures, they've been commanded to love. But I want you to think about uh, something. Can you really command somebody? I mean, can you just, can you just take someone out for, for a coffee that you seem, you know, that strikes your fancy and be like, love me? Uh, you can't, can you really do that? I mean, God commands us to love him. But I mean, on what basis and how is this an engendering and a beautiful thing to be commanded to love? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And when we hear the word new, we think it's like novel, like it's the first time. It's not really what Jesus is saying because it, it isn't new. Um, he's saying, uh, uh, in the Greek, it's entolon kanan, which is, uh, I'm giving you a, a new, meaning a fresh, I'm giving you a fresh opportunity on this, I'm giving you a fresh paradigm for this command. So this command to love, I mean, how are you going to do that? I'm commanding you to love one another. So the immediate context would be the church, those of you who are in this room, to love and actually care for the, the people in the chairs around you. And uh, there's no amount of commanding that would make you want to do that. And there's no amount of me standing up here on a Sunday morning like, okay, guys, everybody make sure you love each other, care about each other, care. come on, guys, we got to love each other, we are the church after all. There's, there's no amount of that kind of commanding that makes your heart want to do it. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new paradigm for this, this command here. And he's going on and as the text unpacks we see that it's actually his love for us that's both the fuel and the form of our love it, it fuels our love for others it's also the form but over the course of our lives our love will begin to take for others in this room this is a new church we're three years old most of you almost all of you didn't even know each other when you started coming to, to be here at redeemer so how do you just without even knowing somebody love them care for them be willing to sacrifice for them and care about their life and their kids. I mean, how do you do that, really? Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a new paradigm for love, and it's that I'm, the, I'm not only the fuel for it, um, but I'm, I'm, the way that I am loving is going to be the form uh, in which you're going to love and care about each other and for each other. And, and in that, we begin to bear the family resemblance. When you think about the way the religious community lived at the time, so think about Jesus in contrast to these Pharisees, these religious rulers that we, we've been talking about over the last number of weeks. Who did they love? And how did they love? Well, they loved people who were performers. That's who they loved. Hey, you seem to be getting it done. You seem to be crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. You seem to be very, hey, you know what? I think you're just as religious as me. I'll love you. Um, what, how did they feel about the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, the refugee? How did the religious community feel about those uh, who just c- couldn't get it right? How did, the, how did the religious community feel about sinners, failures? They're like, walk on the other side of the street, and that would be good for me. When Jesus says, by this love, you know, you're going to love one another, and everybody's going to understand that you're my disciples, there's something that the grace of God is for you, that does the grace of God does something in you, um, this, the beautiful truth of the gospel, of who Christ is and who he is, that when Jesus says this, uh, he's saying, you know, just as I have loved, and... And when, as he is uh, encouraging us in that love, we begin to see how did Jesus treat um, these folks, and that kind of begins, begins to be the picture. So the good news is, when the command is to love, it's not, just a, it's not just a prescription for you. If it was just a prescription, hey, love, love each other. Okay, amen, the end of the service, and we all go home. You get this great command to love each other, um, but you're like, well, where's the fuel to actually do that? I mean, I don't really feel like doing that. It's not, just a it's not just a prescription 
for you. It's actually a description of what the grace of Jesus does in you. The gospel of God's grace for you is the fuel. That fuels the form of this new paradigm of this love. And when Jesus is saying, this is a new commandment I'm giving to you, love one another, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's actually a description of who he is making you to be. A loving person that will desire to love one another. You can't walk into Redeemer and be like, hi, I'm new here and I don't really know anybody. And apart from the grace and the love of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, actually care about the other people in this room. That's the immediate context. It's the church, right? Before we even get to caring for KW and caring for the poor and the outcast and the refugee, before we even get to that, Jesus is saying, this is how people will know you're followers of me because you bear the family resemblance. But that would be a tremendous burden if it wasn't for his grace that was actually doing the work in you. And this is the good news, church, is that this is a description of who he is making you to be. This is a description. You look in the mirror and say, I don't think I feel like a very loving person. And the good news of the gospel is that is precisely what the work of his grace does in your life. It is increasingly making you and I loving people. Because this is what his grace uh, does in us. And so he goes on to say this, and of course this, this is a picture of discipleship. He's, he's discipling the disciples, and this love and care and concern is... Discipleship. Now, our modern Western minds have a hard time with discipleship because when we hear the word discipleship, we think, aha, there's probably a program that's going to be offered for this. I wonder how many weeks that discipleship course is. This is how modern Westerns think about discipleship. Aha, we're going to disciple. Okay, that means information transfer. But in the ancient world, in the far near, uh, in the, in the uh, near East, where this was taking place, Discipleship was this was not a program at all. It was a process. It was a life that you lived into. And so the good news here is that um, discipleship, as Jesus is describing this, love, love one another, it's not a program. It is this process. It's a new way of living that we're brought into by rescuing grace, and we increasingly grow into by his reforming grace. And so discipleship is way beyond just an information transfer that you absorb Intellectually, this discipleship, this love, is something that over the course of our lives we express in community. And so when Jesus says, this is my commandment that we love one another, and this is how people are going to know that you're actually followers of me, that love for one another is not a badge of our commitment to Jesus. Love for one another is the byproduct of Jesus' commitment to you. Because you're in Christ's grip, Because you are full of his Holy Spirit, because he has rescued you by his great grace, and because he is reforming you by his great grace, this is a description of who he, by that great grace, is making you to be. And therefore, the love that we have for one another isn't a badge of are, hey, look, look at, I'm a, I'm a black belt disciple of Jesus because I love my neighbor and care for the poor. And you know, It's not a badge. It's this, incredible, it's this incredible, gracious byproduct that we continually and increasingly live into. And then in verse 36, what's interesting is I took all that time to kind of walk us through this love for one another. But the question the disciples have isn't actually about love at all. They don't even bring it up. When you, if you reread that text, they don't even go back. Hey, so this whole loving each other, can you get into that for me, Jesus? They don't even ask it. Hey, where are you going? And how come we can't go? That's their question. Right? It says, this is immediately where Peter goes. I love it. It's so good. He, uh, he says, where are you going? What do you mean I can't go? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus says, will you really? 
I think before the, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Oh my goodness. Now, I don't know about you, um, but it's comforting for me to see how slow some of the disciples are. It's comforting for me to see how, not only how slow they are, but how reluctant they are to see their own need. Because I think sometimes when I read Peter, it's like I'm looking in a mirror. I'm like, this guy's a little slow, and he's a little reluctant to see his need. Peter is a textbook biased to action guy. He's naively optimistic, and he's a little bit egocentric. He's got this blind spot. I will lay my life down for you. Jesus is like, you're going to deny me. You're not even close. You're not even, you're, you're, the view you have of yourself is not even close. Have any of you ever had to do these uh, 360 feedback things in business or personality thing? Or, you know, there, there's limitations to those things for sure. We like to use those like, and this is who you are now because you took this test, you know? And so live in that box, please, for the rest of your life. That's how we tend to kind of use those things. But they're very helpful in the sense that they give us feedback. And sometimes the way that we see ourselves is not the way that others see us at all. Jesus gives Peter this incredible uh, feedback. But I want, you, I want you to see some incredible grace here. Jesus not only foresees that Peter will fail, but he fully intends to restore Peter when he fails. Because we know that there's breakfast by the sea coming. This is astounding to me. This is otherworldly grace. He's the king. And in the ancient world, if you were the king... And you got a sense that somebody who was closest to you wasn't very loyal to you? What did you do with that person? You got rid of them. What does Jesus do to people that are close to him that don't show great allegiance to him? He dies for them. He forgives them. He restores them. Spoiler alert as the book goes on. He cooks breakfast on the beach for them. It's amazing. It's astounding. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life, which I'm in, we're going to unpack in a minute. That's a very bold, exclusive claim. And at a first glance, you would think that's, that's the way a narcissist talks. My way is the way. My truth is the truth. Right? This is my life. And if we don't understand who this Jesus is, which is why I'm taking eight weeks to unpack the goodness of his grace, we're going we're gonna to read this with a modern view. We're going to impose it and be like, is Jesus a narcissist? Who's like, this is my way, but I got news for you. Look at what Jesus does with Peter. Peter says, I'll die for you. He's like, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me, but I'm going to restore you. Insecure narcissistic leaders will discard you the moment that you don't demonstrate full unwavering allegiance. But Jesus, Jesus restores you knowing you can't demonstrate full unwavering allegiance. Who in here, starting with the preacher, demonstrates full unwavering allegiance to Jesus? I wish I did, and I increasingly want to, but I don't. And you don't. And if you think you do, please talk to me after the service so I can help you with your delusion. Because we love Jesus, but then we, we don't. And we trust in him. But then we don't. We, 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 we trust something else. And we go to him for comfort. But then we don't. And we go, this thing will comfort. And we go to Jesus and say, you, you are the lover of my soul. You will give me calm in the chaos, Jesus. We do it. But then we don't. All of us in here have these little mini messiahs that we turn to. It doesn't matter what it is. The Christian church always think, oh, yes, yeah, we all, you'll, you'll, turn to, you'll turn to drugs and, and alcohol and sex and rock and roll. That's all your thing. You know, that's, the, that's the naive way of looking at it. We, we, we turn to, there's no end to the things that we turn to. 
Whatever it is that you're turning to because your heart is like a stomach and it's hungry and it's constantly, you're like an existential shark moving towards this thing. Maybe this will, maybe this will satisfy me. Maybe this will quench that hunger. Whatever it is, all of us do it. Pick your poison. All of us have these things that we do. And what does Jesus do with those kinds of people? What does Jesus do with the person that says, no, Lord, I will, I will lay my life down for you. I am committed to you. I love you. And he's like, today? But tomorrow, maybe not. And what does Jesus do with, the, with his followers who, to, who, who, who fl- flounder and fail? He restores them by his radical grace. I mean, I don't know anybody else that can do relationships like that. It's otherworldly. Nobody does. If, if anybody failed you that much, you'd never, you'd never continually restore them. But that's our Jesus. And that's why he says he is the way, the truth, the life. It's, it's beautiful. It's powerful. It's amazing. They say, Lord, where are you going? Why can't we follow you? Because the they, they asked this because the disciples had a habit of taking everything that Jesus said and then running it through a really small filter. A small filter called the way that I think things should happen. And they, they couldn't really grasp the plan of God because God's agenda was big and their agenda was very small. They were thinking about national restoration and God was thinking about global eternal restoration. They thought Rome was the problem and they thought revolt was the solution. So they said, let's go. Why can't we go? But Jesus knew sin was the problem and Jesus knew substitutionary death was the solution. So he said, you can't go where I'm going. So let's just zoom out for context for a second. Let's just zoom out. Jesus is about to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. We'll just zoom out. What happened before all this was, of course, the, the Last Supper where Judas goes to the Him. But before that, he raised Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. And we looked at this last week. So he raises Lazarus from the dead. The text says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Which is a beautiful foreshadow of Jesus on the cross crying out with a loud voice. So that through his death, he'd raise all of us from the dead. And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in that, in that text, Jesus says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the resurrection. And now he's saying, I'm the way to the resurrection. I'm the way. This is all like a sneak preview. For us to understand the goodness of him saying, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and how that's not narcissistic, but actually liberating, which we're going to get to in a second, uh, we have to see, this is like a sneak preview. You know when uh, a movie comes out, Star, uh, we're at the movies last night, we went and saw Black Panther, and they show the Han Solo trailer. Every single time a movie trailer comes out, all of the nerds go to that that trailer and they they watch it in super slow motion what does that mean what it, wait wait look at that thing in the background zoom in zoom in zoom in what is that what is it what could it mean and it, this is what they do with trailers with every single trailer and then they, then they put a video together the trailer's two minutes the video explaining every single thing that they found in the trailer is 20 minutes right this is what happened right that's what happened with black panther black panther comes out oh what does this mean oh, what is it what was it wakanda what vibranium how's this how's this possible wait, wait a minute who's that guy hold on back it up back it up two more frames two more frames when jesus raises a man from the dead that's a preview trailer that you should stop right but we're north americans right and jesus raised him from the dead i wonder what happens next okay all right 
Okay, good talk. Good talk. Let's go home. He raised him from the dead. So we got to just stop. Be like, hold on, let's just break this down. So what all the, what all the theology nerds do, this is what, the, what they do with the Bible, is they go, what? Hold on. Okay, let's break this down. Well, what does that word mean? Well, let's go back to the Greek. Well, what could that possibly? Well, what is that connected to? It's like, you know, it's like the, it's like the, the Bible is the redemptive, you know, universe of God where everything is connected. It's all converging in Jesus. And, and so Jesus is coming and he's saying, I'm the, I am the way, the way to that. Now, and he says, you know, in my father's house, there's many rooms, if, if I didn't told you. Some of your translations say, um, in my father's house, there's many mansions. So I'll just take a quick minute to explain this because, um, and even if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're a person of questioning, got questions, and you've heard Christians talk or you've Christian vernacular about you know, mansions in the sky, this kind of thing. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Um, the, the word in the, in the Latin, the word for mansion is mansiones. But in, in the Greek, which the Bible was not written in Latin, the, Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Latin translation was mansiones. But in the, uh, but in the Greek, that's not it. It's, it's uh, many, many rooms, many dwellings is, is monai palai in the Greek. Monai palai. And so when you look at that, it means many dwellings. So Jesus' whole point, so we think about it individualistically, right? Because we're, no, we're modern North Americans. Hey, mansion, that sounds good. <laughs> Big place, that's where we go immediately. But in this language and in this culture, it's a very communal kind of context. So Jesus is saying, in my father's household, there's, there's many dwellings for everybody. In my father's household, there's this family. I'm, there, there's, there's many places, but there's a problem, and the problem is you don't have a place. You don't have a place because there's this thing called sin, which, like the drywall dust in my house, has permeated absolutely everything. And because of that problem that you cannot solve, you don't have a place. So I'm going to go someplace you can't go, and I'm going to do something you can't do so that I can prepare a place for you. Because if I don't do this, you don't have a place. So Jesus is referring to going to this cross, the substitutionary death of his perfection, so that we can have a place with God, which is, which is, a, which is actually astounding and beautiful, because his whole point is, it is the grace of God that gives you a place with God. Right? I'm not just trying to be all rhymey here, <laughs> by the way. Without the grace of God then you're left with your performance to have a place with God. And if you look in the mirror, you know, there's days where you're not a very loving person. Oh, but Paul, I'm loving all the time. See me after the service. I'll just, I'll pray for you. We'll have a healing line or something. I'll pray for liars. No, you're not always a loving person. You're just not. If you don't believe me, ask one of your closest friends and they'll let you know. They'll be like, well, actually, no. You have your moments when you're not a very loving person. And so Jesus is, I have to go and do something here. Because you don't have a place. None of you. You don't have a place. But my grace is going to go and make that place. I'm going to... My father's got room. He's got a lot of room. And now I'm going to get to this very exclusive claim here. Verse 6. So i got to go and do something. Because unless I do this, there's room for nobody. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You may say, well, that's so exclusive. Oh, my goodness, that's offensive. That hits my modern ear. Jesus, there's many ways to God. How can you say that Jesus is one way to God? I want you to, I want, I'm going to expound this so you can see this is actually radically 
inclusive. Jesus making that exclusive claim, narrow, so narrow, only Jesus can walk it, opens up a, a broad door. Here's why. If Jesus is the way to God, then anyone who trusts in him can have the grace of God. But if Jesus is not the only way to God, then only certain kinds of people doing certain kinds of things, doing enough of those certain kinds of things, gets the grace of God. So if Jesus is not the only way, and we don't put all of our chips on him and his perfection, what we're left with is our performance. And that is not good. Jesus saying, I'm the only way, is good news. Because whoever you are, whatever you have done, regardless of your past, regardless of anything that you're even struggling with right now, this moment, regardless of all of that, you can trust Jesus, and he gives you his grace. That's very good news for absolutely everybody in this room. But if Jesus is not the only way, then that means it's on you. And because that is how every other religious system works on planet Earth. Every other God has a means and a way you know, by following these processes to salvation. And Jesus says, I am the way. It's me, not you. And that is tremendously good news. Now, one of the concerns is, well, if you believe that there's only one way, and then and history teaches us that religious people who think their way is the true way become, they get a superiority complex, they become arrogant, they become violent or oppressive. All of those things are true. The church has many black marks in history that cannot be ignored. And all of those black marks in history of superiority complexes and oppression and violence, because they said, I'm the truth, you know, I have the truth, and so I'm going to, you know, spread the truth at the tip of the sword, is nothing like Christianity. It's not true Christian faith. It does not resemble the founder of our faith, Jesus. When you look at, when you look at, how Jesus treated those who rejected him, how did, what did he do? If you look at church history, the institution of the church, it's, an, it's a nightmare. I'm studying church history. When I was studying church history in seminary, I'm like, it's a miracle I got out the end of it and still believed in Jesus and the resurrection. Because church history is atrocious. Why? Because they've lost the gospel, and when they lose the gospel, they think, oh, I'm superior, and I have the truth, and because I have the truth, I should spread it, you know, through oppression and violence. And that's, that's tragic. That's an utter contradiction of Jesus. You see, having a conviction that Jesus is the truth is not a problem. Everybody lives by their conviction. Having a conviction doesn't make you a narrow person. What makes you a narrow person is how, is how that conviction causes you to treat somebody else. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And what was Jesus' attitude towards those who said, you're not the way, you're not the truth, and you're not the life? Jesus' response to that was, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He died for his enemies. He shed his own blood. So every black mark on church history, which is atrocious and should be condemned, 100% condemned, is because it, 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 they weren't fanatical Christians. They, that's, not Christ, that's not fanatical Christianity. That's not Christianity. Today, when you've got 
when you've got fanatics with two thumbs and a Twitter account saying belligerent, insane things about women or about refugees. That is not fanatic Christianity. That is not Christianity. The problem isn't that they're too Christian and they need to dial it back. The problem is they're not Christian enough. Because where did this whole thing start before he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life? He said, you know how people are going to know? You know how people are going to know? By, by your love, by the love that you have. And so the good news of the gospel actually creates the opposite. Because the message of the gospel doesn't tell us we're superior. The message of the gospel tells us we're forgiven. The message of the gospel doesn't tell us that we have a leg up on everybody else in Kitchener and Waterloo. The message of the gospel is the only reason we're united to the, tr- the way, the truth, and the life is by grace. And if that's true, if the only reason you're sitting here in Redeemer this morning worshiping and thanking God for the great forgiveness of God is because of grace, then that's going to make you and I very humble people sharing the love of God, the grace of God, and our hope in the city. Because we know the only reason we're here is not because we're better, it's because we're forgiven. And so this is Jesus giving this bold exclamation, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that sounds, when you hear that, you think, well, that sounds constricting. That doesn't sound liberating at all. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that means I have to bend my knee and live according to his way. So that doesn't sound liberating. That sounds constricting. But you want to know something? Love is a profound voluntary restriction. You, you can't be married unless you basically sign up to, for voluntary restriction. If you're a single person and you're happy being single, and that's a, a beautiful way to live your life, to just be a single person, loving Jesus and living as a single person. But you can't be a loving single person waking up every morning thinking about how awesome your singleness is and wrapping yourself up in yourself. You can only be a loving single person to the degree that you're willing to give up your freedom. When your phone buzzes and your friend says, my day was terrible, can we have coffee? And you're like, mm, I could inconvenience myself and go have coffee with you, but I'm in the middle of a Netflix binge and this is pretty important. Okay? Like, if you live your life by that, it doesn't matter whether you're single or whether you're married. Love, like, to, to, to love is to voluntarily give yourself to restriction. That's what makes it loving, you know. You, for those of you that, that are married, you know it's a weird thing to be a grown adult and be like, I can't leave my house without telling people where I'm going. You know, you're, you're a grown adult. But you're like, I'm just going to go to the store and get milk. I'm going to go up the street and get a coffee. You can't just get up and go. You restrict, your love restricts you. And from the outside, it's like, oh man, that just seems terrible. You're being led around by the nose. You know, Paul can't leave his house without saying, hey Susan, I'm just running up to the store. That's brutal, man. But on the outside, I'm sure it looks crazy that a grown man has to say to his wife, hey, I'm, I'm leaving the house for five minutes. But you want to know how it feels on the inside for me to be married to Susan? Amazing. I love her. I have voluntarily restricted myself to Susan. Love is a voluntary restriction. When Jesus says, I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life, our voluntary restriction to Jesus opens up this beautiful world of possibility. We're in, we're in uh, the middle of the Winter Olympics right now, and I can promise you, all of the Canadian hockey players, you know, our Canadian women's team has, has won since the dawn of time, I think. They just seem to always win. The men's team has done amazing. This year, everybody's got bated breath on, because it's Canada. It's hockey. You know, none of those Olympic hockey players are sitting there. None of those, none of those ladies are looking at themselves going, 
man, all those nights I missed out with my friends, all the freedom I gave up, you know, I, I could have just been eat, eating Big Macs, you know, every, every Friday night, but no, I had to be on this regimented diet to be an Olympic athlete. None of them are complaining about the freedoms they gave up because they're, they're, they're like, man, we're going to Olympic hockey. The, 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 the voluntary restriction has opened up this incredible life of enjoyment and flourishing for them. All of those athletes. None of them are complaining. Oh man, I wish I could have slept in more. My friends got to sleep in and miss first period all the time. But me, I had to get up at three and practice and work out every day. They're not complaining about it now. They got their eyes on the gold, right? All of them. And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And you and I get to say, you know what? I'm going to bow my knee to the glorious grace of the one who said, I'm going to go where you can't go. I'm going to do what you can't do. And I'm going to make a place for you because you don't have one. And I'm going to give my life to that. And I'm going to allow the gracious rescuing work of his grace to do a reforming work in my heart. And I close with this. The good news of this gospel is that though we all deserve God's justice... Church, we will receive God's mercy because Jesus is the way into the grace of God. He's the truth about the nature of God. And he is the life that is increasingly reshaping us into the image of God because we are united to him. Let's pray.